with God's people and the association of churches praying for over a decade before he was ever sent. Well, I'm not giving you a message on that. I do want to exhort us as churches to be united in our prayer for the work of missions. We have the resource of the Harvest Prayer Mission Guide, which is a great blessing from Berean Baptist Church. But I want to encourage us even on maybe the first Lord's Day of the month. That was the practice that happened in the association there in um, Northampton and the others there in England. It was the first Monday of the month the churches meant to pray that the Lord would raise up laborers, that the Lord would send those to the far-off lands. And I want to encourage you, not command or anything like that, but encourage and exhort as churches. Maybe we should take the first Sunday of the month and be praying for true revival, praying for the Lord to raise up men from our churches, to do that in a united way as an association. But for this message, that's message one, get two. I want you to turn to a very familiar book, Jonah. Jonah in chapter four. In many ways, uh, this is dovetailing with what we heard this morning from Pastor Traver and the importance of examining our own hearts before the Lord. And so I wanted us to take the time to be able to examine our own hearts in the light of the compassionate mercy of the Lord and the lessons that he's teaching to Jonah in Jonah chapter 4. Now we'll be looking at the last several verses, verses 5 to 11, and let me turn to professor mode for a moment. If you know the structure of Jonah, it has two parallel panels and then an ending. You have, for example, God's word to Jonah and Jonah's response, which occurs in chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, when he's given the commission and he runs, and then again in chapter 3, where he's spit out on, on the dry land and given the commission again, and he obeys. Then you have Jonah's encounter with Gentile pagans. And the first time that occurs, of course, is on the ship. And then again in Nineveh. So you see how that parallels. The third thing is that Jonah prays to God and the Lord speaks to him. And that's what you see at chapter 2 in the belly of the fish. But then we also see it in chapter 4, verses 1 to 4. So it's three parallel panels. But then we come to these last few verses at the end. And it stands outside of that parallel structure, pointing to the fact that this is the culmination of the whole message of the book of Jonah. And that's why I want us to focus on this. So follow with me. I'll start in verse 1 just to remind us of some of the context. It reads the whole chapter, but our focus will be on verses 5 to 11. Hear now God's holy word. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see 
what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort or evil. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun bared down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant, for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? That's for the reading of God's word. Let's pray together again. Oh Lord, we know that your word tells us that you are a father, our father. And as a father shows compassion to his children, so you show compassion to those who fear you. So Lord, we come to you in reverence and awe and pray that you would show compassion on us again today by ministering to us through this word, your word, and by your spirit, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Our God is a God who gets to the heart of the matter, which is the matters of the heart. This is what the Lord said through the prophet Samuel, to the prophet Samuel, as he went to anoint a son of Jesse as the next king of Israel. For Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. This is what Jesus taught his disciples in Mark chapter 7. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. See, Christianity is the true religion of the heart. And yet so often, you and I can be blind to what's going on inside of us the sin that's lurking in the depths of our hearts. That is, until the pressures and the heat of our circumstances push it to the surface. And that's often the case with a missionary as well, especially a missionary who's gone over to a new culture, is experiencing new things, having to learn a new language, and all the frustrations that come with that. Listen to what Sinclair Ferguson says. He says there... There the missionary may find what a narrow-minded, prejudiced, conceited, prayerless, fruitless, and uncooperative believer the missionary really is in his heart of hearts. As a missionary once shared with me, I never knew what a heart of stone and filth I had until I went overseas. The missionary heart was exposed for his sin. And what we have here in this passage is Jonah the missionary 
having his heart exposed. So I want us to consider this last episode and see how the Lord exposes Jonah's heart and in that way can expose our hearts as well. We'll see three things. First, the long-lasting anger of Jonah. Then the long-suffering compassion of the Lord. And then finally, a lingering question for us. The first thing that we note here is the long-lasting anger of Jonah, which is there in verse 5 and in verse 9. Now, what we read earlier in verses 1 to 3 is the angry accusations of Jonah. After the people of Nineveh repent, he is fuming with anger. He sees the relenting of the Lord from sending judgment, and he's greatly displeased, and the language is exceedingly angry, is how Jonah felt. If we had the time, I could take you through those first verses and show you that what Jonah is actually doing is he's accusing the Lord. He's accusing the Lord of both being unjust because he's extending his mercy to such a wicked people. And he's accusing the Lord not only of being unjust, but of being unfaithful to Israel. How could you save these enemies of ours? He's angry and he's accusing God. In a real sense, these are blasphemous accusations against the Lord. Yet how did the Lord respond to Jonah's accusations? By patiently probing Jonah's heart. Do you do well to be angry, Jonah? You see, he's calling Jonah to self-examination, to consider his ways, to search his heart, to understand how he has gone astray, and to return to the Lord. Jonah should have heeded the words of previous prophets as one who's part of the line of prophets. Prophets like Joel who said this, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He relents over disaster. He should have listened to the words of Isaiah. Isaiah 1.18, where God says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. But how does Jonah respond? Jonah, the prophet, missionary of God. When God comes with this patient probing and this, shall we say, compassionate catechizing, Jonah responds by remaining hard-hearted and sinfully stubborn in his anger. Furthermore, he refuses to engage with God in this process of self-examination. It's like the beginning of the book all over again. He chooses to remain silent and to flee. That's what he does in chapter, in verse 5. You remember in, in the first chapter, we're told three times that Jonah was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. And fleeing from the presence of the Lord is what Jonah is doing here again as well. You can see it in the text in two ways. It's noted for us. It says in verse 5, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city. A seemingly insignificant detail unless you know your Bibles. Right? Going east is a motif in scripture for fleeing from God's presence. When Adam and Eve are cast out of the Garden of Eden, 
the place where they had enjoyed the special presence of God, they went east, east of Eden. Cain, after he murdered Abel, is sent away from the people of God, and the text says that Cain went away and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Those who built the Tower of Babel, rebellion against God's command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, are described as a people who were migrating east. When Abraham and Lot are in the promised land and their flocks grew too big for them to share it and to be together in the same place, it tells us in Genesis 13 that Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. See, this movement east is a marker of humanity's drift away from the presence of God. And here it signals Jonah's continued rebellion, continued long-lasting anger as he drifts from God. There's another detail you need to notice as well. It says that Jonah made a booth for himself there. A reminder of booths or shelters is that it reminds us of the Israelites, how they had to make booths and shelters in the wilderness as they're journeying from Egypt to the promised land. Thus, Jonah, in a sense here, is in a desert, in a wilderness with inhospitable conditions surrounding him. And so when he flees from the presence of the Lord, he's running. The first time, he was cast into turbulent seas. This time... He leaves the city and is in an arid desert. Both environments symbolize chaos and death. In biblical thought, it corresponds in that way then to Jonah's heart state. We have to ask this question, why did he even remain near the city of Nineveh at all? I mean, why not go back to Israel? We see at the end of verse 5 the reason why he's there till he should see what would become of the city. See, Jonah's so settled in his conviction that Nineveh will be destroyed, they should be completely destroyed, that he stays because he wants to see it. He believes judgment will still come. Either because Nineveh's repentance is not going to last very long and they'll revert back to their wickedness and violence and God will destroy them and judge them with fire. Or... Because he's given to the Lord a kind of ultimatum where he says to the Lord, kill me or destroy the Ninevites, but you can't have both. So you see, Jonah continues to persist in his anger, to stew in it, and to let his heart and mind be consumed with it. It's so sad, isn't it, to see Jonah to have reverted to the state that he was in at the very beginning of the book. After all that the Lord had brought him through, rescuing him out of the turbulent seas, pursuing him with his grace over and over again, and yet he persists. Think about what he should have remembered that as he ran from the presence of the Lord. It didn't go well the first time. The Lord pursued him with severe mercy then on the boat and he was cast into the sea but Jonah is so blinded by his anger that he has forgotten that lesson that's an important lesson for us how anger can so blind us to the truths we know so well that we forget 
So what about you this afternoon? Are there ways in which you have forgotten the lessons that the Lord has taught you? Are there ways in which you're trying to flee from the Lord as he's calling you to examine your heart? You heard the call this morning. <laughs> Search me, O God, and know my heart. Whether it's sitting under the preaching of the word or in your own reading of scripture and the Lord's calling you to interrogate your emotions and ask, why am I angry? Why am I afraid? Why am I distracted by all my serving from the Lord? Have you responded like Jonah, trying to not think about it by distracting yourself with busyness by fleeing from the Lord? Well, the Lord calls you once again this afternoon to run to him instead of running from him, to engage with him instead of ignoring him, for he is a God full of mercy and compassion. Which leads us to the second point. We've seen the long-lasting anger of Jonah, but we also need to see the long-suffering compassion of the Lord. And you see, once again, we know God would have been perfectly just to condemn and judge Jonah completely. After all, Jonah is accusing God of being unjust and unfaithful, complete lies and blasphemies. But that's not what the Lord does. He once again, for the umpteenth time in this very book, pursues Jonah with his grace. In his sovereign mercy, you see how long-suffering the Lord is with his wayward people, even his wayward prophets and pastors. And this time he does it through an object lesson. He gets all kindergarten with him. Gives him a plant, a worm, and a wind. And is seeking again to probe his heart. He intervenes with his grace to indirectly reveal Jonah's heart and to teach him grace. And one of the things you'll notice about all three of these is it says in verse 6, verse 7, and verse 8, that the plant, the worm, and the wind, they're all appointed by God. It points to God's sovereignty over all things. That this is not just some accident. This is exactly what the Lord is doing. The Lord who is sovereign over all creation. The one who we saw in chapter 1 can hurl winds and storms. The one in 117 who can appoint a fish to swallow Jonah. The God who is sovereign over all creation and over every detail of each and every one of our lives is the one who brings these three things. From the large storms to the smallest plants and worms. And so once again what we see is the Lord is marshalling his creation to serve him and pressing them into service of teaching his servant Jonah. But what's he teaching by these object lessons? Consider first the lesson of the plant. He's teaching him abundant grace that exposes Jonah's heart. Though Jonah had made a shelter for himself, think about how stifling the heat of the desert is. I was reminding them of the stifling heat of the south when I moved here in July. <laughs> and uh, one of the things that we were doing in July, of course, was unpacking our two 28-foot trailers and while it was hot outside could you imagine 
I don't have to imagine, but you can imagine how hot it was inside those tractor trailers unloading when it's over 103 degrees outside. So Jonah is in the desert and he builds a shelter. There's no breeze inside of the shelter, no wind from the oppressive heat. And think about how oppressive it would be even to remain inside the shelter, even though he has a shelter. So instead, he would prefer to sit outside under the shade of the shelter to get at least a little glimpse of a breeze, if possible. Yet it's still hot. So God, in his grace, appoints a plant to grow up and provide more shade for Jonah that's outside. And the purpose is described as this, to save him from his discomfort in the ESV. There's a footnote that says that's actually the same word as evil. To save him from his evil. That's the purpose. Certainly the plant was a symbol of God's abundant and gracious provision, but it is also the means by which the Lord is seeking to save Jonah from his own evil heart. And Jonah's response to the plant is what exposes his heart. Notice at the end of verse 6, what does he say? So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. What a contrast to the description in verse 1 which says Jonah was exceedingly angry. In other words, Jonah was as happy about the plant as he had earlier been angry about the Ninevites. And you see what it's exposing, his greater concern in his heart for himself and his own comfort over against the souls of thousands of people made in the image of God in Nineveh. As one commentator put it, Jonah would be quite content to see an entire city roast in hell. But he was overjoyed over a plant whose only purpose was to make his personal life a little easier. And brothers, this plant tests our own hearts as well. Brothers and sisters, what is it that makes you exceedingly glad? What is it that makes you overjoyed? What gets you excited and out of bed in the morning? That reveals what you truly value in your heart. And it can reveal all too often, if you're like me, how you value yourself, your own comfort, your things, more than you value souls. Sinclair Ferguson put it this way, Do we care more about the items in our gardens, the produce in our fields, or perhaps the contents of our garage or home than we do about our fellow men and women and the spread of the gospel to them? Do we care more in the last analysis about our own comforts and plans than about the evangelism of the world in our time? See, this is the grace of God to Jonah and the plant to expose his heart by what he loves and enjoys. And it's God's grace to us today as well. But then there's also the lesson of the worm and the wind. Take them together. Because the worm and the wind are a preview of judgment that also exposes Jonah's heart. 
See, after Jonah has enjoyed the shade of the plant for a day, the very next day, the Lord appoints a worm to destroy it. And destroy it, he does. But that's not all. It goes on to say that the Lord sends a scorching east wind. So it's not bad enough that now the plant's gone. Now you have like sand grit wind coming and blowing against you. In the Middle East, it's known as a Sirocco, a hot east wind coming down from the mountains of Iran into the land of Israel. It could be often extremely oppressive, reaching speeds of 60 miles per hour. And it's the same meteorological conditions that are in Santa Ana, in our own country, that bring the wildfires and the worst wildfires in California. Both of these things, and the worm and the wind, are images related to God's judgment. Remind you of some passages. Covenant curses of Deuteronomy 28. It says, You shall plant vineyards and dress them, but you shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worm shall eat them. Covenant curse. Isaiah 66.4 And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the man, men who have rebelled against me, for their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Or what does Jesus say in Mark chapter 9? If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. You see what Jonah's experiencing there? It's a preview of eternal judgment. The winds and the worm. And by so doing, God was holding up a mirror to Jonah and asking him this question. Jonah, do you really want justice? Do you really want fire from heaven to descend on those who disobey the Lord? You can't even handle a little hot wind. Do you really want to store up a hot anger in your heart to know the hot wrath of the Lord? As another commentator put it, if Jonah wishes... God to deal in strict justice with Nineveh, that he must be prepared to experience that strict justice himself. If, however, he wishes God to treat him mercifully, then he must be prepared to embrace the extension of God's mercy to others. You see, the Lord is challenging Jonah's prideful anger to invite him into deeper fellowship, where he could acknowledge his own need of grace and see the Lord's amazing patience with him. And the Lord is challenging our hearts as well to stop and remember the mercy that we have been shown. To remember the depths of our sin and the offenses against God that we have committed against him over and over in our lives. Because only when you know the very depths of your sin that you really begin to grasp the exceeding infinite heights of God's love and grace towards you. And what he's challenging us to is to be compassionate and merciful as he is compassionate and merciful. But how often you and I can be like that steward in the parable of the unmerciful servant. Where God's forgiven us an infinite debt. and We hold a grudge that's worth five dollars. 
And how does Jonah respond to God's grace? The Lord comes a second time to catechize Jonah's heart, and he responds again with unmitigated anger. Do I do well? Yes, I do well. Angry, angry enough to die, Jonah says. Will Jonah ever learn the depths of God's compassionate mercy? Will we learn? Well, that leads us to our final point, the lingering question for us. You see, the book of Jonah is different from most other books in that it ends with a question. There's only one other book, and that book is the book of Nahum. Interestingly, it's a book about judgment for Nineveh. But here is the question that's left for Jonah. It's the third time that the Lord compassionately catechizes Jonah's heart. And he says this in verses 10 and 11. You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? You see, the Lord here is making an argument from the lesser to the greater. Jonah had compassion, pity for one plant, a created thing not made in God's image, mind you, that Jonah did not make nor cultivate, and that was here for one day and then gone. And he has compassion for one plant, whereas Nineveh is full of people who are made in the image of God. 120,000, an expression for a multitude or an innumerably large quantity, people that God himself had created, people that God himself had sustained through all the years of their life and cared for, causing the rain to fall and food to grow. And these are people described here as those who don't know their right from their left, which is not a phrase about children in this context. That's not what it's saying. It's referring to a people who don't have access to special revelation. They don't have the word of God. And God is asking, should I not have compassion on them? Should I not pity or have compassion on these? Is it not right to have compassion on the lost? And how Jonah answers that question is left unanswered for us here in the book. We don't know what Jonah said in response. We don't hear him speak again. But that's on purpose, you see, because what matters for us is not how Jonah answers the question. What matters for us is how you and I answer that question. And that's the point of this book. The word of God that's living and active and for us today. So, should God show compassion to the lost? Do you have compassion for the lost, really? Or are you more concerned with yourself and your things, so that you have no concern really for the lost? Are our churches, is this association too focused on ourselves to be concerned about the lost and dying around us in our own towns and neighborhoods and regions? 
William Bockstein says this, if the lives of community members are perceived to be less valuable than the lives of church members, the church will prioritize covenant nurture to the exclusion of community outreach. Now, don't misunderstand. We are called as pastors to shepherd God's flock, of course. But do we value them more than the lost souls around us? Should we value them more than the lost souls around us? Calvin says this, how difficult it is to perform the duty of seeking the good of our neighbor unless you leave off all thought of yourself and in a manner cease to be yourself, you will never accomplish it. How can you exhibit charity unless you renounce yourself and become wholly devoted to others? And the Lord is probing our hearts and asking us, what are you devoted to? Yourself or others? Yourself or to me and my mission, God says. Do you stop to consider the plight of the lost, those with never dying souls? That you remember every human being that you meet is an immortal, is one who will live forever either in heaven or in hell? Do you contemplate how they are headed for eternal condemnation if they do not repent and believe on Jesus Christ? Do you think about hell yourself? Have you ever considered the previews of hell that you've been given here on earth? The depression, despair, the consuming anger, the loneliness, all a foretaste of what those in hell will experience for all eternity. Do you stop and consider that there are literally billions of people who are like Nineveh today and don't have access to special revelation at all? Billions! Over 3,000 language groups that don't have access to the gospel in their language. And here we are with our hundreds of translations in English. Are we broken hearted for them? See, Jonah responds to the preview of hell by saying this. That's their problem. God responds by saying, no, it's your problem too. It's your problem too. Should we not have compassion to the lost and condemned? Should we not know that their problems are ours too? Well, let me conclude with this. Turn to God and see how he had compassion and has compassion. You see, our problem became his problem too. He did not just experience a preview of judgment for us like Jonah did. But he came in the person of his son and he experienced the full force of the wrath of God in our place. Our problem became his problem too. He showed us true compassion, that feeling which goes out toward one who is in trouble, and he showed it not just with mere words and platitudes, but he acted to the point of giving the whole of himself for us. 
And he shows us the wideness of God's compassionate mercy in this. You see, the true measure is the length of the outstretched arms of Jesus Christ on the cross. God's only son on the cross of Calvary to die for our sins. That's compassion. And you are called to be conformed to the image of the son who has a heart that's filled with compassion. And may we be churches and an association filled with compassion for the lost, that we will spare nothing that is legitimate to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are blown away by your compassion towards us. But we confess how often we forget the depths of your mercy. We thank you again for even this brief reminder of the infinite mercy of our God. And we ask that you would forgive us for how we have been so dull of heart, and so full of ourselves, concerned with our own little world, that we forget the lost around us. Lord, help us again. Work by this word and your spirit to make us a compassionate people that reflect the infinite compassion of our infinitely glorious God. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.